BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Donald Trump became president by exploiting a loophole in our Constitution called the Electoral College. The majority of Americans did not want Donald Trump for president. The majority of Americans did not vote for Donald Trump for president, but he's there anyway. And now he's planning on using a different loophole, the 12th Amendment, to hang on to power. Back in the election of 1876, the Democrat Sam Tilden won both the Electoral College and the national popular vote, but four states claimed that occupying Union troops were engaging in voter fraud, so they submitted Electoral College slates for both candidates. With these competing Electoral College slates, neither candidate won the majority needed to take the Electoral College and become president, and as a result, the election got thrown to the state legislatures via the House of Representatives, and they chose the Republican who had lost the election, Rutherford B. Hayes, as president. Donald Trump proclaimed during a rally a few days ago that he and the Republican Party are planning a very similar strategy. I wrote about this back in March. I have been ranting about this now for a half a year. You've got nine swing states with Republican-controlled state legislatures. Nine of them. And the Constitution says that the state legislatures, legislatures have the final say in what their electoral college vote is. They have the ability to completely ignore how the election turned out and simply choose any presidential candidate they want. It's right there in the, in the Constitution. And the swing states that are going to decide this election, I mean, kind of set aside all the other states, although we still need to turn up in overwhelming numbers in every state in the union. But the swing states that are going to decide this election are Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, Arizona, and New Hampshire. And what do those nine states have in common? They all have Republican-controlled legislatures. They all could do what Florida did in 2000 when the Florida legislature, uh, led by their, uh, their uh, Senate Majority Leader, John McKay, was preparing to vote to say, yes, all our electors are going to go for George W. Bush. Now, they they ended up not doing that because the Supreme Court did it for them. But had the Supreme Court not done that, the Florida legislature was was prepared to say, it doesn't matter who wins the election. We are going to send George W. Bush electors to Washington, D.C. and award the presidency to George W. Bush. They just came right out and said it. And these nine states can do this. 
and Republicans are talking about it right now. And by the way, the, one of the things that really startled me when I was reading this article back published in 2000 by uh, David Barstow and uh, Samini Sengupta um, in the New York Times was that the lawyer who was advising the Florida Republicans was a guy by the name of John Yu. Yeah, that guy. He's now a law professor at the University of California, but when he was with the George Bush Dick Cheney administration, he was the guy who, along with Jay Bybee, who's now on the Ninth Circuit, these guys both got well rewarded for their work. John Yu was the guy who said, oh yeah, waterboarding is not torture. Go ahead, do it. Slam them into the wall, no problem. Crush their children's testicles, that's okay. Right in front of them, in fact. So this is the guy who is advising the Republicans on this. I mean, it's pretty clear now that the Republicans in those states are planning to do what Republicans did in 1876 and have their state legislatures direct the electoral vote for Donald Trump, even though Joe Biden may have won more states in their, more votes in their states. And when that happens, the Democrats are going to say, well, Republicans are trying to steal the election. And they will sue. And that lawsuit is going to go to the Supreme Court. And Donald Trump is concerned that, that uh, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, John Roberts, may waffle on this, and it could be a four-to-four decision, which might not produce the result of Donald Trump being uh, president, even though he massively lost both the electoral vote and the popular vote. And so he's trying to get a, a sixth right-wing vote on the court so that if John Roberts defects, he will have five votes in a five to four decision. And that's why Republicans are pushing so hard to get their Supreme Court nominee on the bench before November. So this, is, this election is now in our hands. We have to push really hard on our senators, particularly if you are represented by a Republican in the United States Senate. You need to be calling their offices. You need to be tweeting about them. You need to be talking about them on social media. You need to be calling them out. Because this, this is part of Trump's plan to steal the White House and turn America from a democratic republic into a banana republic, into a right-wing authoritarian regime. And, and also, you know, double-check and make sure that you're registered to vote. Go to IWillVote.com and make sure that the Republicans haven't removed your name from the voting rolls. They're doing it literally every day. In these nine states, you've got Republicans, well, not in all nine states, but in, in, in many of these states, Republicans are actively removing voters from the voting rolls, particularly if you live in an area that typically votes Democratic or if you live in an area that has a high population of African-Americans, Hispanics, or Native Americans. They are coming for you. So go to IWillVote.com and make sure that your voter registration is up to date. Stick around. We'll be right back with Greg Powell. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us, our old buddy Greg Pallas, the investigative journalist known for his reports for the BBC, The Guardian, The Rolling Stone. He's the author of the new book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters. And uh, Greg, welcome back. Tell us about your uh, lawsuit threat to the Georgia Secretary of State, Raffsenberger. Do I have that right? 
Raffin's Purger, believe it or not. It's about his Persian ways. He's the Persian general (laughs) of uh, Georgia. Uh, Took uh, Brian Kemp's place. (laughs) And, um, yeah, so what we have here is the smell of mendacity. As you know, and we reported on your program, first broke the story on the Tom Hartman show, that the ACLU had issued a report by the Palace Investigative Fund and our experts saying that, This guy, Raffensperger, this GOP, uh, there's no other way to put it, a stooge, removed 313,000 Georgians from the voter rolls in October of last year. And uh, I put my address experts on it, and he said he got these names mostly from the U.S. Postal Service. So I literally hired the Postal Service and their licensed expert, a company named Merkel Company, and uh, and four other expert specialists, and they went through his list, and they said, this didn't come from the post office. The post office said it didn't come from the post office. But interestingly, the hit list, the purge list, people removed from the voter rolls of Georgia, were surprisingly disproportionately African-American and young. And we went through the list name by name, found 198,351 people exactly, we have every name and address, that were not on the post office move list, that have never moved from their home address, and he, he removed them as voters in Georgia because he said, well, they left the state or they left Atlanta. It's a lie. We caught him in the lie. And then we said, well, where did you get these bogus numbers? And he, when he wouldn't answer, we said, well, guess what? Under federal law, you have to tell us. You can't. This is not Georgia of the Soviet Union. This is Georgia of the United States, believe it or not. And you are, cannot remove voters from the voter rolls unless you show us how you did it and where you got this supposed postal list that the post office says ain't from us you know it's a hit list of black people it's just it's not from the post office so we demand we said if you don't give us a name we're suing you you don't tell us how you got this list we are suing you under federal law you can't hide this and by the way under federal law you have to do what the palace investigative team did you must must by the federal law use the post office itself and their designated licensee we did, he didn't, and then he started lying. He so said, has the post are lying. you know, he just kept lying. So, um, but we are going to sue him unless he gives us the real stuff, and unless he gives us his, his and he still bogus list. Do you have any idea where the list might have come from? Is this, uh, you know, one of Chris Kobach's efforts or something like that? Well, you know, he did get one list from Chris Kobach, uh, you know, Chris Kobach of Kansas, Mr. KKK, we've exposed him. And when he tried to hide that from us, by the way, a federal judge slammed him over the head with her gavel, basically saying he was lying, that he didn't, that his office and Brian Kemp didn't get this information from Chris Kobach. So he dropped the Kobach list. Uh, by the way, he had to pay our fund for that, for his lies. Um, now... Hmm. He's come up with new lies and new lists because Kobach's out of business. We thank you, Tom. You helped put the Kobach and his cross-check list out of business. But he's got this new gimmick, and we're trying to find out where do these lists come from? Who's giving him these lists? And and if it were just Georgia, well, of course, Georgia's a swing state, not only for the presidency. Keep in mind, Tom, we've got two, two Senate seats up neck and neck. This could control the Senate and the White House, Georgia. But if it were just George, I wouldn't be worried. But, but this Georgia disease seemed to have been picked up by other GOP operatives, secretaries of state, uh, purging voters in other states as well. So I'm very concerned that we get to the bottom of this, get to the bottom of it right away. And therefore, we have said, look, 
You want to go back to the same judge and get clonged again? We're going to do it. We're going to drag you back in the court every single time. But I know the game he's playing. He's trying to make a sue to and hold it past the election. Put these people back. We held a press conference with Black Voters Matter Fund and Latasha Brown and uh, you know, to say, look, the ACLU caught you, caught you with this Jim Crow operation. Now put these people back. Is, but he has not yet done it, right? No, he's attacking me, saying, give me your list. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, not only give you our list, we'll, we will buy the license for you from the post office to get the right list. We will give you the Palest Fund experts. I'm not, an, you know, I'm not the experts. We have the, the biggest names in America and from Amazon and Google who have lent us their experts to go through this list, and we'll get it right. But in the meantime, I'm giving you the names and addresses of 198,351 people who should be allowed to vote. And anyone in Georgia, right. please tell, check your registration or go to SaveMyVote2020.org and see if you've been purged. Right. There you go. Or IWillVote.com. That'll get you there, too. Uh, Greg Palast, GregPallast.com. You can read all about it on Greg's website. Uh, also, you can read all about it in his new book, How Trump Stole 2020. Greg, thanks for dropping by. It's always great talking with you. You're the best, Tom. You back at you, Greg. We'll be back. It's coming up on 28 Minutes. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your calls right after this. Stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
John in Evanston, Illinois. Hey, John, what's up? I know a lot of people are feeling despair. They're thinking that, what can I do? You can make calls into the battleground states. It's very effective. You can make friends with people. You can help arm the electorate. The fellow who wants a succinct explanation of where everything is explained should go to the endorsement of the Scientific American. It's been 175 years. This is their first endorsement. Ask people to read it. It's wonderful. John, thank you. And if you want to sign up to do something like this, indivisible.com is a great place to start. Angela, New York City. Hey, Angela, what's up? Hey, thank you for your service, Tom. Does the Democratic Party have a plan B in case the election is close? I don't know. <laughs> you know I'm being reassured by uh, Tom Perez a few days ago that they've got the best lawyers in the world working on this. But I think that as long as the Republican Party is willing to go by the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, which you know they can easily rationalize, I think we've got a big problem. You've got nine states right now that are the swing states. Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, Arizona, and New Hampshire. Every single one of those nine states has a legislature that is dominated and controlled by Republicans. And the Constitution says that the legislature of the states determines how the electoral votes are cast. Now, all the states in the union, except Maine and Nebraska, have a rule that whoever, whichever presidential candidate wins the majority of the vote in that state wins the entire electoral college in that state. In Maine and Nebraska, they split it between two physical districts in the state. But any state can simply pass a law through their legislature very quickly. And if they have a large enough majority, they can even get it past a a gubernatorial veto, which they would certainly face in Michigan and Wisconsin. Any legislature can simply pass a law saying, you electors must vote for Donald Trump in this election. They absolutely have that right. And it's right there in the Constitution in Article 4. And increasingly we're hearing, I mean, Joe Scarborough on his program focused on this, or actually I think it was Mika Brzezinski, focused on this with some intensity. (laughs) And I think all the rest of us need to be focused on this. But the only way that we can defeat that is to turn up in massive and overwhelming numbers at the polls. Even if they've thrown you off the ballot, get back on the ballot. If they're saying it's too late, you know, fight it. I mean, go to IWillVote.com and participate in this stuff. i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Richard in Phoenix. Hey, Richard, what's up? Hi, Tom. Something I'm not hearing anybody talking about or in any of the mainstream media, how are these people going to vote that are being displaced by all these fires? In California, you don't have to have a physical address to vote, but it does help to get a ballot. <laughs> so I know that California is uh, working on that here in Oregon. Governor Kate Brown has put together a, an outreach program to make ballots available to those people who, who have lost their homes. We had two towns, uh, Talent and, um, I'm forgetting the name of the other town, um, but in any case, we had two towns here that literally burned to the ground. Thank you for the call. Teresa in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Teresa, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey, uh, tough times, but you know what? I, I think we might be in for a long haul to regain our democracy, but I feel hopeful. We'll do it. We'll do it. The topic I wanted to talk about is abortion rights. And for the longest time, I thought to myself, okay, why isn't it argued under the basis of religious freedom? Because, you know, here's how my thinking goes, that when life begins, apart from, you know, the 
objective, scientific-based, measurable basis of viability, mm. anything before that is actually a religious question. And so yeah. why, you know, why does it, for example... Well, and this... Yeah, Teresa, I'm sorry we're running out of time here, but, but, you know, what the Supreme Court said basically was that, you know, life begins at viability, arguably. Um, I mean, you know, this, this, but that is, I believe, uh, a religious question. And I think you're right on that, but, you know, it's, I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime You're listening soon. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Share the Tom Hartman program with your friends. We're available on SiriusXM, Free Speech TV, Pacifica, commercial stations nationwide, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, on the Tom Hartman app, and you can even tell your smart speaker to listen to the Tom Hartman program. Nick in Jersey City. Hey, Nick, what's on your mind today? I'm a Trump supporter, and I've been trying to find one of my Democrat friends, and also just Democrats in the country, to condemn the tactics used by Obama's Department of Justice in Crossfire Hurricane. And I would like to know if you would do that. And I would like to know if Republicans are now allowed to use those same tactics and use this FBI and use the CIA against Democratic presidential candidates. Okay, so let's be very clear about this, Nick. Operation Crossfire Hurricane was an investigation into whether Donald Trump's campaign had people inside that campaign who were working for or coordinating with Russia or other foreign governments. Are we on the same page here? Yes. I mean, we could talk about the origins, about why they launched that investigation and what they did with the FISA court and what they did with the dossier, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, yes, I agree with that description of what was going on. Okay. So let's take this out of the realm of politics. You know, my, my initial instinct was to say, if Obama was doing it, but, but let's just take it out of the realm of politics. If the FBI, which is sworn to protect the national security of the United States, learns that multiple members of a person who has just been elected president, multiple members of their campaign, and at least one member who is proposed for their cabinet, their national security advisor, are actually being paid by foreign governments. And you and I both know Mike Flynn got a half a million bucks in Turkey, are being paid by foreign governments and are interacting with foreign governments as, as we had, what, seven different members of the Trump campaign, including Paul Manafort, who had worked for Putin-related oligarchs all over the world, actually, for the last 15 years, yeah. that those people are engaged in that kind of practice. What should they do? Are you suggesting they should just ignore it? No, I'm not suggesting they should ignore it. So I, I just want to be, I want to know what the standard is, because I'm a Republican, and I'm upset. I, I feel like Donald Trump is kind of like, wimping out a little bit because I feel like he should be doing the same thing as it relates to President, Vice President Biden and Rosemont Seneca and their dealings with the Aviation Industry Corporation of China. State-owned They are. Space and they are right now, Nick. So, Bill Barr, the Attorney General know, of the United know, States, know, has come out and said, yes, we are investigating Joe Biden. Ron Johnson just released something in the Senate saying, here's yeah. what we learned when we went over and talked with uh, you know, one of Putin's guys. Right. The wealthiest woman in Russia gave Hunter Biden three and a half million dollars. I'm aware of that. Right. So That's, know, that is what Ron know, Johnson is saying. So where, so, exactly. So, so and and do you think that the FBI has not looked into this, Nick? 
I'm just curious. Look, I'm trying to avoid a civil war, and I want to know what the rules are. Yeah, me I too. Know what my side could I'm do. with you. I want to know what my side could do. Can my, I'm, I'm so saying... Can if there's any evidence, I'm sorry, we're talking past each other, Nick, and, and it's probably because there's a little bit of a time delay here, but I'll give you within the two minutes we have all the time you want. But to the best of my knowledge, if there is any evidence that Hunter Biden or Joe Biden or anybody else is colluding with a foreign power to seize control of the White House or to sell out the interests of the United States, I want the FBI on that. And I would want the F- and I wanted the FBI on it four years ago when you had Mike Flynn, you know, secretly meeting with the Russian ambassador and interfering with U.S. foreign policy before before Trump was sworn into office. And we know that that happened. Mike Flynn has pled guilty to it twice and admitted it in public. That's a that's a major crime. I mean, that's you, know, you had a federal judge call that treason. That should be investigated too. I think regardless of party, if you've got American politicians who are dancing to the tune of foreign oligarchs, you've got seven Republicans who went over and spent the 4th of July in Russia. You know, Ron Johnson was one of them. You know, what the hell is going on here, Nick? I agree. I'm against uh, American. Look, I'm an importer-exporter. I do business overseas, too. But I wouldn't do business with a a state-owned aerospace firm as the son of the sitting vice president with the People's Republic of China. How about China General Nuclear, which the Department of Justice, Obama's Department of Justice, accused of conducting espionage for nuclear state secrets for the last 22 years? The guy's an equity part. Nick, I I am completely with you. Hunter Biden screwed up hugely. But the question is... The question is, is Joe Biden, did Joe Biden change U.S. foreign policy as a result of that? And that's something that, you know, should be looked into. And I think Ron Johnson's trying to raise this issue. Um, he's saying he didn't. I haven't seen any evidence that he did, but, you know, I'm willing to listen. But if it, but we know for a fact that Donald Trump on multiple occasions has changed U.S. foreign policy to favor Russia. Aren't you concerned about that? Uh, no, I, I, frankly, no, nothing came up. You're not? I, I mean, you're, no, I'm not. You don't, I'm you don't think the other nation would actual, If there was actual, if there was actual collusion between Donald Trump and Russia, I would be concerned about that. But there was a... You don't think that him hanging out with Vladimir Putin for two hours privately and then coming out and saying, oh, Putin didn't try to interfere in the 2016 election, when that's all of our intelligence agencies say that's not true, is collusion? called diplomacy. He's not going to say that he did it right there when he's right next to him with all the cameras right in front of him. That was diplomacy. Why not? George W. Bush did. Do do you think that George W. Bush called out Putin to his face repeatedly? Russia's economy is 7%, 7% our economy. And they have as many nukes as we do. Nick, I got to run, but thank you for the call. I, I share your concern about a civil war. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Treason and Betrayal, The Rise and Fall of Individual One by Kenneth Ford McCallion. This is from the prologue. It was a gray, overcast day in Washington on January 20th, 2017, the day that Donald J. Trump was sworn in as 45th President of the United States. 
The weather matched the mood of the majority of Americans who had voted for Hillary Clinton, but whose candidate was denied the election as a result of an anachronistic electoral college system, a lackluster Clinton campaign that had ignored key battleground states such as Michigan and Wisconsin, and of course substantial help from the Russians. But the most significant assault on American democracy did not result from the illegal hacking and cyber attacks by Russian agents on our electoral system and social media. Rather, it came from Donald Trump's full-scale assault on American ideals and values, which had long been this country's most powerful weapon in its arsenal of democracy. In his grim inauguration speech, Trump basically announced the end of American exceptionalism. The hallowed concept and conviction that the United States has a special mission and place in history. Instead of extolling the virtues of our democracy and calling upon its citizens to raise the torch of liberty in every corner of this country and around the world, Trump took the cynical view that the United States was no better or worse than Russia or any other authoritarian country, and that all our government should be doing is to put America first by concentrating on building our country's economic wealth over all other considerations, and by not worrying about other concerns such as human rights or even democratic rights and freedoms around the world. Trump's denouncement of America's commitment to liberty and justice for all was a frontal attack on the guiding principles forming the bedrock of our democracy and America's faith in itself and in its transcendent mission. The Declaration of Independence had been a clarion call that resonated not only on this continent, but around the world, declaring that the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was the cherished goal of all Americans and freedom-loving people the world over. Now, Trump was seeking to extinguish that fire by declaring that America was no longer the beacon of liberty and that every country, especially Russia, should be permitted to do whatever they wanted in their own country and its own sphere of influence. And that if they dismembered neighboring countries or slaughtered their own people who were fighting for greater civil and human rights, that this was of no importance to the United States. In other words, Trump was articulating precisely what Putin and others in the Kremlin wanted to hear which is that Trump would give them the green light to rebuild the Russian Empire without fear of opposition or retaliation by the U.S. In doing so, Trump was demonstrating that he was a traitor to the traditional American democratic ideals. The enduring concept of American exceptionalism dates back to French writer Alexis de Tocqueville's reflections on America in his 1835 work, Democracy in America, where he concluded, quote, the position of the Americas is therefore quite exceptional and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one." End quote. Abraham Lincoln echoed this theme of American uniqueness when he noted in his Gettysburg Address in 1863 that one of the things that sets us apart from all of the countries in history is the sacred duty of the United States to ensure that the government of the people, of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. Since the end of the Civil War and up until January 20th, 2017, the idea of American exceptionalism has infused the rhetoric of virtually every modern president and political leader. In April 1917, near the end of the First World War, President Woodrow Wilson exhorted Americans to fulfill the country's destiny to make the world safe for democracy. In his State of the Union address in January 1941, when the future of liberal democracies in a world war against fascism hung in the balance, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent a message to its besieged Democratic allies around the world, reassuring them that, quote, We Americans are vitally concerned in your defense of freedom. We are putting forth our energies, our resources, and our organizing powers to give you the strength to regain and maintain a free world. This is our purpose and our pledge, end quote. 
58 years ago in his inaugural speech on 19, in January 1961, President John F. Kennedy reminded Americans that it was our country's fun, fundamental duty to protect human rights at home and around the world. He pledged that Americans would bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure that survival and the success of liberty. Ronald Reagan inspired us with his soaring rhetoric about America being a shining city on the hill, a beacon for freedom, hope, and liberty that was and always will be the model and example for all the world. President Obama in April 2009 publicly announced, acknowledged America's, quote, extraordinary role in leading the world toward peace and prosperity, end quote, while cautioning that such a lofty goal could only be achieved through effective partnerships with other countries. He also often reminded us that America is, at its core, a good and caring nation that must work tirelessly in the cause of democracy and human rights all around the world. With Trump, this powerful concept of American exceptionalism, which has been enshrined in our nation's psyche for almost 200 years, was declared to be dead and buried, or so Donald Trump and his enablers would like us to believe. In the immortal words of Stephen Colbert, Trump, in his easily forgettable inaugural speech, basically compared America to a dumpster fire. America's longstanding mission to preserve and protect the causes of democracy, freedom, and human rights around the world had, according to Trump, virtually devastated the country. Treason and Betrayal is the book. Welcome back. So on Twitter, Coyote Joe says, Tom, in Pennsylvania, the presidential nominee selects the electors for the Electoral College. Well, actually, it's the party. It's the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party select their electors. That's the way it's done in every state. And then it goes on, he goes on to say the legislature is controlled by the Republicans, but the Pennsylvania governor is a Democrat. He can veto any change in the electoral code. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's going to depend on the Pennsylvania law. And, and I guarantee you right now there are good lawyers who are, you know, just thoroughly going through and parsing all this stuff. But here's the bottom line. In Florida, when the Florida legislature was planning on doing this, they went to Jeb Bush and said, will you sign this law? Because they have, in both the Florida House and the Florida Senate, they have basically a veto-proof majority. So if the governor doesn't sign the law, it becomes law after seven days. If he does sign the law, it becomes law immediately, and they didn't want to wait a week. Now, if the governor vetoes the law, then they have to come back and overturn his veto, which, again, could be done in one day. So the question in Pennsylvania, and every single one of these swing states, but in particular in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, where you've got Democratic governors and Republican state legislatures, is, is the Republican majority large enough that they can pass a law like this without, without the uh, consent of the governor, shall we say? And is it large enough that they could over, over, overcome a veto of the governor? And if there's a couple of states where they couldn't, where the Republicans just can't pull this off because that Democratic governor is going to stop that legislation from being enacted, are there enough other swing states that this can be pulled off, that they can pull this thing off and make it happen? And, you know, that's, that's I think, you know, one of the really, really big questions is exactly who can do this and who can't and how's it going to play out. You will recall, if you're a regular listener to this program, you will recall that back in, what, April? I think it was, maybe March? In fact, it might have even been before the coronavirus was a big deal. I published a piece 
went up in Common Dreams and Alternet and uh, Raw Story and Progressive, et cetera, et cetera, Salon, where I laid out how the election of 1876 went down, where it got thrown to the House of Representatives. And I pointed out that if this election, if, if there are not enough states that certify a single electoral slate that say, yes, we are, you know, the state of Florida has decided that the entire state is voting for Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Doesn't matter. If you don't have enough states certifying the electoral votes, that either candidate gets 270 votes, electoral votes, then the election goes to the House of Representatives. And in the House, each state has one vote, and that vote is determined by their state House of Representatives and state Senate combined, which are majority Republican controlled in the United States right now, which means Donald Trump gets reelected. I think this is the sentence that was, you know, most uh, uncovered or was, or failed to be covered. Um, this uh, the uh, over at the Daily Mail, uh, the situation. Donald Trump says this is in a White House briefing. He said, at a certain point, it goes to Congress. He's talking about the election. At a certain point, it goes to Congress. I have been, I have been shouting this for at least a half a year now, that I know from, from contacts that I have in Washington, D.C., and I know from common sense that the Republicans have been planning this. Let's screw up this election so we can't have a certified slate of electors so it goes to the House of Representatives. And I think this whole thing with the mail is part of this. And then uh, my old friend Jim Turr sent me a, a thing uh, yesterday that he got, I don't know, he got it off Facebook or what. And he said, What's, what happens when hordes of Republican voters show up at the polls without masks and then make hack, loud hacky, hacking cough noises to try to scare off Democratic voters? What happens in those states where mask wearing, and Trump is now saying anywhere in the United States, no mask wearing mandates when they don't enforce mask wearing at the polls? Are people going to be afraid to vote? I think that's the strategy. And what, what's the outcome of that? Well, it could be that Trump wins. It could be that it gets thrown to the House of Representatives. In either case, that is not American democracy. That's something out of, a, out of a third world dictator's playbook. We'll be back with your calls and thoughts on all this. Stick around. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Hi, Tom Hartman here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly, remember the Boston Tea Party, to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan Revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, This is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation, end quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. 
And welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you and uh, John in West Allis, Wisconsin. Hey, John, what's up? Well, on Friday, I got my absentee ballot. Now, before I send it in, I decided to check my registration. I have voted for sure in every election since 2004. I've never had a problem with my registration. I have not moved since 2004. My driver's license, which is 10 years old, I just renewed at the same address. My voter registration was not found. In other words, I had no voter registration. It had been purged. Everybody, before they do their voting or send in their ballot, absolutely has to check their registration and make sure, make absolutely positive that your registration is valid. I can imagine you know, sending in an absentee ballot, the clerk getting it, say, the day before or the day of the election, and, and having to discard it because there's no registration. Right. Did you, just, did you contact just, the Secretary of State's office or your local election officials to, to find out what happened? No, I haven't, but I do know that in Wisconsin, the Republicans uh, sponsored a uh, a couple hundred thousand voter purge for people who supposedly had moved and and they supposedly sent out address cards saying, is, you know, have you moved or is this the correct address? A lot of them weren't returned, but I don't know for sure what happened in my case. Yeah, you got caged is my guess. Well, John, you know, (laughs) See if you can get yourself, if you can get your voter status re- restored there in Wisconsin and, oh, and let us know how it works out, will you? I've, I've already got it done. That's, that's good. Oh, you did? Did you do it online? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can do it online. And the, D- the, the voter registration site checks with the Wisconsin DMV and they verify the address. And of course, since I just had my driver's license renewed, the address was the same address. Uh, it, it only took seconds to, to do it. But the point is, if you don't know about it, you can't do it. Right. Right. And Republicans are stripping people off the voting rolls left and right all across America right now. So, yeah. OK, John, is, is thanks for the heads up and thanks for the warning. Great to hear from you. I appreciate it. Chuck in uh, Chicago. Hey, Chuck, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, two real quick points. If this election lines up in the Supreme Court and since Brett Kavanaugh was knee deep in Bush versus Gore, could he be recused from hearing anything? And the other quick question I have is, why doesn't our media ask these GOP senators? Now, if it is clear that Trump lost, but he won't accept it, are you going to support him? Our media is lazy. I'll sit back and listen to your yeah. answers. Thanks. Yeah, I'm with you. Thank you, Chuck. And by the way, Brett Kavanaugh, who was knee deep in Bush v. Gore in Florida in 2000, John Roberts was down there, too. That's why George Bush put him on the Supreme Court as the chief justice. Because he helped craft the arguments in Bush v. Gore that got the Supreme Court to give him the White House. The last time the White House got stolen in 2000, you know, we were seriously pissed off. But nobody thought that George W. Bush was going to end the American experiment. He was going to twist it badly, as he did, but we didn't think he was going to end it. Donald Trump is going to end it. And, and has come right out and said it. It's amazing. Dave in Las Vegas. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Yeah, on that Trump supporter that called you a few minutes ago. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of the conversation, he says, well, it's a matter of diplomacy. And I'm, and I'm jumping in front of the TV like this man just poisoned his political rival in his own country. And you want to talk to diplomacy? Right. 
You right. know? Well, and my point was, you know, uh, you know, it would be easy to say Barack Obama called out Putin to his face. I mean, there's, you know, the pictures of that are all over the place. But George W. Bush did, too. And, and so did Ronald Reagan. And so did and not specifically Putin. But, you know, if, if Eisenhower. I mean, we have a long history of our presidents on both parties standing up and speaking the truth about a whole wide range of foreign governments, including, you know, the former Soviet Union and now Russia. But, you know, right across the board. And I just, I, I, these guys who are so loyal to Trump that they're willing to overlook the national interest is frankly uh, both saddening and shocking to me. But Dave, I'm with you. Thank you for the call. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I was just wondering if it was time for us, uh, the champion of uh, democratic government and nation building, if it was time for us to start having some election monitoring by an international group that is globally recognized as ensuring security and credibility of elections, the way the United States has many times, you know, thumped its chest about how, you know, we're over in this country or that, making sure that they have free and fair elections. I think uh, we could use a little bit of babysitting on our own elections, don't you think? I think so, yeah. But I I remember broadly speaking, in the 2000 election, there was an effort, I believe by the United Nations, to put election monitors in a number of U.S. states, and that my recollection is that Ohio banned them. And there may be other states, but but I think that we've, we've seen this movie before, Eric. And the Republicans basically said, no, we will not have election monitors in the United States. Go ahead. They're going to be kind of a clearinghouse for information for all kinds of different aspects of COVID-affected lives and families. And a a Mm -hmm. point of of fact that they might want to include as something that they're collating data on is those individuals who were, um, you know, deniers and mask-refusing fist fighters in supermarkets and Trump rally attendees and so forth, um, those individuals who behaved in that way, their medical insurance companies have a right to know that they have culpability, as well as Medicare, Medicaid, us taxpayers, for those who voluntarily went extra into harm's way for us to pick up the pieces economically. Yeah. I get what you're saying, Eric, but right now under the Affordable Care Act, you can't deny somebody care because of something that happened in the past. If they, if Trump gets his right winger on the court and they, and they shut down uh, the Affordable Care Act, then maybe what you're saying could happen. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. It really is a deep history. It's brilliant. This is from the introduction. As 1956 drew to a close, Colgate Whitehead Darden Jr., the president of the University of Virginia, feared for the future of his beloved state. The previous year, the U.S. Supreme Court had issued its second Brown versus Board of Education ruling, calling for the dismantling of segregation in public schools with, quote, all deliberate speed. In Virginia, outraged state officials responded with legislation to force the closure of any school that planned to comply. Some extremists called for ending public education entirely. Darden, who earlier in his career had been the governor, could barely stand to contemplate the damage such a rash move would inflict. Even the name of this plan, Massive Resistance, made his gentlemanly Virginia sound like Mississippi. On his desk was a proposal written by a man who had recently been appointed chair of the economics department at the University of Virginia. 
37-year-old James McGill Buchanan likes to call himself a Tennessee country boy, but Darden knew better. No less a figure than Milton Friedman had extolled Buchanan's potential. As Darden reviewed the document, he might have wondered if the newly hired economist had read his mind. For without mentioning the crisis at hand, Buchanan's proposal put in writing what Darden was thinking. Virginia needed to find a better way to deal with the incursion on states' rights represented by Brown versus Board of Education. To most Americans living in the North, Brown was a ruling to end segregated schools, nothing more, nothing less. And Virginia's response was about race. But to men like Darden and Buchanan, two well-educated sons of the South who were dedicated to its model of political economy, Brown voted a sea change on much more. At a minimum, federal courts could no longer be counted on to defer reflexively to states' rights arguments. More concerning was the likelihood that the high court would be more willing to intervene when presented with compelling evidence that a state action was in violation of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. States' rights, in effect, were yielding in preeminence to individual rights. It was not difficult for either Darden or Buchanan to imagine how a court might now rule presented with the evidence of the state of Virginia's archaic labor relations, its measures to suppress voting, or its efforts to buttress the power of reactionary rural whites by underrepresenting the moderate voters of the cities and suburbs of Northern Virginia. Federal meddling could rise to levels once unimaginable. James McGill Buchanan was not a member of the Virginia elite, nor is there any explicit evidence to suggest that for a white Southerner of his day, he was uniquely racist or insensitive to the concept of equal treatment. And yet somehow, all he saw in the Brown decision was coercion. And not just in the abstract, but the court ruling represented to him was personal. Northern liberals, the very people who looked down on Southern whites like him, he was sure, were now going to tell his people how to run their society. And to add insult to injury, he and people like him with property were now, no doubt, going to be taxed more to pay for all the improvements that were now deemed necessary and proper for the state to make. What about his rights? Where did the federal government get the authority to engineer society to its liking and then send him the bill? Who represented their interests in all this? I can fight this, he concluded. I want to fight this. Find the resources, he proposed to Darden, for me to create a new center on the campus of the University of Virginia, and I will use this center to create a new school of political economy and social philosophy. It would be an academic center, rigorously so, but one with a quiet political agenda, to defeat the perverted form of liberalism that sought to destroy their way of life, a social order, as he described it, built on individual liberty, a term with its own coded meaning, but one that Darden surely understood. The center Buchanan promised would train a line of new thinkers in how to argue against those seeking to impose an increasing role of government in economic and social life. He could win this war, and he would do it with ideas. While it's hard for most of us today to imagine how Buchanan or Darden or any other reasonable, rational human being saw the racially segregated Virginia of the 1950s as a society built on the rights of the individual, in quotes, no matter how that term was defined, it is not hard to see why the Brown decision created a sense of grave risk among those who did believe that. Buchanan fully understood the scale of the challenge he was undertaking and promised no immediate results, but he made clear that he would devote himself passionately to this cause. Some may argue that while Darden fulfilled his part, he found the money to establish the center, he never got much in return. Buchanan's team had no discernible success in decreasing the federal government's pressure on the South all the way through the 60s and 70s. To take a longer view, follow the story forward to the second decade of the 21st century. 
and a different picture emerges, one that is both a testament to Buchanan's intellectual powers and at the same time the utterly chilling story of the ideological origins of the single most powerful and least understood threat to democracy today, the attempt by the billionaire-backed radical right to undo democratic governance. For what becomes clear as the story moves forward decade by decade is that a quest that began as a quiet attempt to prevent the state of Virginia from having to meet national democratic standards for fair treatment and equal protection under the law would, some 60 years later, become the veritable opposite of itself, a stealth bid to reverse engineer all of America. Democracy and change. Jeff in Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Jeff, what's up? It says here you're a Trump supporter. Hey, Jeff, what's how are you doing? Um, I was just calling in regards to that last caller before your break um, that stated we should have a foreign government monitor our elections. And in the last four years, everybody's up in arms about Russian interference. So how is a foreign government going to monitor our elections, and how are we going to ensure security of those elections if we allow a foreign power to intervene? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of a foreign government monitoring our elections, Jeff, but I do think that the U.N., which has done this all over the world, wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, And the Carter Center has also done this. Uh, I I would think that people of both parties, of all parties, uh, would be enthusiastic about having elections where the the people's will is actually what happens, wouldn't you? But that is what happened. In 2016, the people did vote in Donald Trump. No, the, actually, I mean, Donald you, Trump lost by three million like votes in 2016. Yeah, but the Electoral College, that's so uh, California, New York doesn't dictate the rest of the country. I mean, you no, the Electoral Michigan College was so, was so that dictate, the three days that Detroit it took for the news dictate, to get from D.C. down to Georgia, um, it could, you could get around it. Alexander Hamilton laid out the rationale for the Electoral College in the Federalist Papers at length. And he said the whole point of the Electoral College was that people far away, people in New Hampshire, people in Georgia, had no way of knowing if somebody running for president was, to quote Alexander Hamilton, a man of low moral character. End quote. And therefore, each state would elect a, a group of electors who would go to Washington, D.C. and interview the presidential candidates. They would vote what their state voted if they agreed that these were decent people. And if they discovered that the person who was running for president was actually some kind of cretin, uh, they would not vote for them. And that, you know, the, the usefulness of that evaporated with the Pony Express in 1820. I mean, it's just there's no reason for it any longer. It's and and the last Republican that a majority of Americans voted for initially for president was George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988. You've got you've got two presidents, George W. Bush, who was put there, who lost the the popular vote by a half million votes, and Donald Trump, who lost by three million votes. And it looks like this time around, even if Trump can figure out a way to stay in power, he's going to lose by more than three million votes. How is that a good thing, Jeff? Uh, I think he will find a way to win the election. But why is it that Detroit gets to dictate what people do in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan based on population? That's the whole point of the Electoral College is so that you don't have a large group of people. That's not the point of the Electoral College. And that's called democracy, Jeff. What you're arguing, you're making the argument the libertarians make that they don't believe in democracy, that we should not, that America should not be a democracy, that we should be run by an elite uh, technocratic class it's drawn from the from the democracy. from the business America is a republic it's not a democracy um, that's a common the words republic jeff 
Okay, finish finish your point, Jeff. It's just a common tactic that Democrats like to use. Is they want to say that uh, we're a democracy. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. Okay, Somebody so Jeff, what's the difference between a democracy and a republic? The difference between democracy and republic is that people who aren't represented by the large group of, or by a large population in one area isn't going to be dictated to. You, everybody gets an equal voice. If you go by Jeff, Jeff I, I would oh. encourage you to go back and and I mean just seri- take a serious look at the history of this country. In the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s, when the Constitution was written, when our first president was put into place during that period of time. The words democracy and republic were interchangeable. They meant the same thing. By and large, they still do. What we have as a form of government... Jeff, let me just finish a damn sentence, would you? Hold on. Just a second. What we have right now in the United States is a constitutionally limited... The Constitution limits the power of government. Not the power of you and me. It limits the power of government. Constitutionally limited. Representative. We don't have a direct democracy. We don't have a, a, a pure republic. We elect people to represent us. Representative. Democratic. Majority. The, whoever the majority votes for, that's who they've got representing them. Republic. We have a constitutionally limited representative democratic republic. That's what we are. And I get it that, you know, back in the, back in the day, back in the, back in the 50s, when Joe McCarthy was doing his thing, when he was saying, never say Democratic Party, it sounds too nice. Say Democrat with an emphasis on the rat. And, and you know, and, and by the way, he said, never call America a democracy. That sounds too much like the damn Democratic Party. Call it a republic. It's a BS argument, Jeff. What you, if your logic was true, then... Tell me to go read the Constitution. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, Jeff. You can't use that kind of language on the air. Um, and you know, yeah, thank you. And and uh, Joyce, please flag him. Uh, Ron and Barry and Springs, speaking of Michigan. Ron and Barry and Springs. Hey, Ron, what's up? Hello, Tom. Tom, I have proof of this. Now, the, the Antifa is being accused by our federal government of starting these fires in the Northwest and in uh, the West. In my opinion. And I'm going to give you know, they're not being accused by our government. The FBI has been coming out and saying there is no such thing. It is Russian trolls on Facebook who are promoting this idea. Okay. All right. But, but still, the federal government... And they've, it, and they've got a bunch it, of right-wing suckers. It's really sad. Right. But here's the but thing. Your, your point, Ron. Uh, in my opinion, the, the right wing are the ones who are starting a fire. They, they, they are established in, in the Northwest... The Aryan uh, Brotherhood, the the uh, their uh, their uh, their training grounds, and yeah. with their training going to Ron, I you know I don't want to. I'm sorry, Ron, but I, I, I'm not going to go down the path of right wing crazy uh, conspiracy theories or left wing crazy conspiracy theories. Um, I get it. There was a story I saw this morning over at Daily Kos. I haven't had a chance to to read it yet. Um, that said that there was some concern that, you know, right-wingers were trying to foment a revolution. I mean, we already know this, right? Uh, you've got groups that are openly calling for, for you know, an armed revolution or, or a, a civil war, basically a race war. The FBI has identified them and said that they're a threat to American security. Um, this, this is the, you know, the right-wing f- uh, movement. Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, what's up? Hello, uh, um Hello, Tom Hartman. I just before I get into my question, I just want to, you know, I know this is, this is hurts me as a Spanish language speaker, but 
I wanted to correct you on your pronunciation of derecho. You say derecho, not that you're, you know, you're saying derecho or whatever. It's derecho, C-H, derecho. Derecho. Derecho, right. And just to explain a little synopsis of just because I just learned about it recently, too, that the derecho is the opposite, obviously, of tornado or tornado in Spanish. So, obviously, tornado in Spanish means twisted and derecho means straight. So, obviously, that's the contrast. Ah. And that was that's 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 hence why what it means in Spanish is derecho means straight, tornado means twisted. So and it was invented. And the thing is, just as a Spanish speaker, I've never heard anyone use that term to refer to those kind of storms because I think when I'm, when I read it, it was invented by a meteorologist back in the 1800s as a contrast to explain tornadoes. Like, oh, what's the opposite of a tornado? Oh, a derecho because it's straight. So that's like a little history mm-hmm. lesson there about that term. Yeah, and I okay. just want to get with the pronunciation, but. So, oh yes, my main question was that, um, you know, you know, I think, why don't the Democrats and I guess, you know, everyone like the Lincoln Project people, I think they've done it, but they should really hammer home what Mary Trump and other psychiatrists have said, that Trump's a crazy person, you know, screw the whole, oh, Democrat versus Republican thing, that, you know, and you just talked about it with the Electoral College about someone who's morally unfit. Trump is someone who's morally unfit. I don't think such a crazy person would have been voted for in Jefferson's time. You know, so that's something that, like, we should really hammer home that he's not a mentally fit person for office. Someone who's a narcissist psychopath is the opposite person, you know, to put in office. It's like saying, oh, let me put the Joker yeah. for office. Or- Alejandro, a couple points. Number one, I would argue that probably Andrew Jackson was crazier than Donald Trump or they were in the same league. Uh, you know, I mean, Andrew Jackson enthusiastically murdered Indians. You know, I mean, he was he was just like, oh, boy, this is fun. Right. Um, Number one. Number two, um, I think that we need to be talking about people's policies. I'm horrified. You know, I read Mary Trump's book and I'm horrified by, you know, what I understand. And I've talked to, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists on this program you know, uh, what appears to be the psychopathologies that Trump has. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of Americans like him. A lot of Americans like his policies and a lot of Americans are going to vote for him. Over 60 million Americans voted for him four years ago. So I think that what we need to be talking about is the the fact that Donald Trump has said, has bragged about the fact that if he gets reelected within three years, Social Security will be dead. Um, By December, if he has his way with the Supreme Court, the Affordable Care Act and your protection against getting ripped off by your insurance company if you have pre-existing conditions will be dead. And the right of women to have an abortion in the first trimester of pregnancy, if they decide that's the best thing for them, will be dead. No pun intended. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Not to mention your protection against being ripped off by your bank or your car dealer, your protection against having your air or water polluted, all those things will be dead too. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 